Good morning from me. For the past few weeks, we have been traveling through a two-parter preaching series. We've been looking at the people of God on the mission of bringing about his kingdom, starting with a whistle-stop tour of the book of Joshua, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll be slowing down to take in the book of Acts in a bit more depth. Today marks our fourth and final survey view of the book of Joshua, and our feet are now shuffling up to the edge of our Joshua diving board. We're almost ready to take the leap towards Acts next Sunday via a look at some of the parallels between these two hugely important books. To conclude our time in Joshua then, today we'll be going through Joshua's chapter seven and a nod towards eight at much greater speed and at much less detail than they deserve, such is the nature of a survey. Though even that does not take away from the clear and challenging message that God's word has for us this morning. The main takeaway from this morning's passage is a warning. God is merciful, but he does not want compromise in his relationship with us. God is forgiving and loving, but he doesn't want the truth or the glory of his kingdom to be diluted, mixed with the murk of the fallen world. Doesn't want his people to live in half-truths or half-freedoms. He sets a high standard for us because he loves us, because he wants us to live in the fullness of his life and his light, not a half-life or a half-light. So I'm titling today's message, God's Presence, Purity and Protection. It wouldn't be a proper sermon if they didn't all start with the same letter. P is a good sermon letter, isn't it? I think so. Our passage this morning sees Israel move out of God's instructions for them, disobey what he's told them to do, and so move out of the immediacy of his presence, move out of the protection that comes with the purity of that presence, and they suffer the consequences of doing so. And as if our passage this morning was not long enough, we need to start a few verses before at the destruction of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, starting at verse 24. If you have a Bible with you this morning, good job. Um, Please join me in there as we journey through Scripture. We will also have the verses on the screen in the English Standard Version translation. Verse 24 of chapter 6 of Joshua. They burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. So that is the command of what to do with the city of Jericho. That was the plan. Now beginning at chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. What's the NIV? The city of Jericho which God powerfully gave to Israel to conquer, was to be completely destroyed. More than that, actually it was to be devoted to the Lord. The word that's translated devoted here is a tricky one in English. The Hebrew word behind it refers to something given to God, devoted to God's service, or sometimes devoted to destruction to glorify God. For example, a field that was given to the priests was devoted to the Lord. It was a gift to God. It remained in use as a field, and 
The priests grew food in it, and that was for the service of the Lord. Great. Likewise, silver and gold items from the conquered city were rededicated to God, devoted to the worship of the true Lord, Yahweh, and made holy. For things that were devoted to destruction, a sacrificial animal was devoted to the Lord, burned up as an offering to God. The cities that the Israelites were told to destroy, the cultures with their practices of child sacrifice and demonic worship that needed to be removed, these were devoted to God. Taking something that was offensive to God, deeply against his plans, that need to be removed, and offering it to him in destruction as a holy act. So there is a lot going on in this word devoted. It is, as the NLT commentary puts it, the complete consecration of things or people to the Lord, either by destroying them or by giving them as an offering. Take those things, those places, and devote them to God. We will circle back around to how we feel about the rights and wrongs of things being devoted to destruction a little bit later on. But for now, let's just focus on the fact that God told Israel to do something, and as we begin chapter 7 and 8, we find that precious relationship between God and his people to be threatened by those people's disobedience. Joshua 7.1, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. The Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. This is an ominous start. As we begin chapter 7 and this story with an insight into what's going on behind the scenes in the heavenlies, if you like, and Joshua and a lot of people in Israel don't know that this has happened yet, let's read on and see how these events unfold, holding that scary fact in mind. Verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Don't worry all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So what happened here? If you've been following our series in Joshua, you'll remember how much we talked about God's presence being with Israel as the knockout blow to any enemy that Israel could face. The one deciding factor in any battle, the Lord. The force that made the enemy's hearts melt before his people. And that to be God's people in his will, following his instructions, means that God has already won those battles spiritually before any man has picked up a sword. So God's people in retreat, humiliated, quivering in fear, that's not right. Did the spies get it wrong? Well, how could they? They were the lookouts for the people of God. Surely their God-given vision meant that they would get the best possible picture of a situation. No room for error. No room for failure. God had it covered, right? Joshua is devastated. He recognizes that something has gone badly wrong here. So picking up from verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there 
till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? I do love Joshua here. Joshua's brilliant response is to get right into the presence of God and spend a good chunk of time there. Something's gone wrong, get to God. As Morag put it beautifully last week, Joshua's long training with Moses in the tent of meeting, staying and resting in God's presence, will have set him up incredibly for a lifelong habit of going to God in the joyful times and the tough times. Joshua recognized the importance of his relationship with God, of Israel's unbroken dependence on and faithfulness to and relationship with God. So Joshua mourns, he tears his clothes, he falls down on his face, he puts dust on his head, humbles himself, and even has the leaders of Israel joining him in that. And he says, and I paraphrase, how could you, Lord? How could you abandon us? Where were you? This isn't what you promised. If it seems like Joshua's blaming the Lord here, I think he is. He doesn't know what's gone wrong. And he knows that Israel needs God's promised power and protection if they're going to carry out the mission they've been given. From verse 10, the Lord's response is clear. Look, Joshua, it's not me, it's you. Let's read from verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. This isn't from me, God says. The problem isn't at my end. You, my people, have broken this relationship. It's you who caused this problem, this distance between us. Are there any people here who are really good kids at school? Don't put your hands up, but I know you're here. The really good ones. The ones who got the, I'm disappointed in you, telling off. I definitely remember times when the naughty children would get a shrug and sent back to the playground, and the good kids would get the full, how could you? You're the ones I trusted. You're meant to be setting an example. I'm having flashbacks, this is terrifying. Those teachers, they seemed to be personally wounded, betrayed, like their friendship had been bruised in that breaking of relationship. God was so cross with his people that they should drop his design of purity and holiness and become hypocrites so easily, so cross that he was no longer willing to use them 
to build his kingdom. God had allowed them to face defeat, to be ridiculed, even to lose that strategic edge of appearing undefeatable to the nations in that land because he was not willing to fight for them on those sinful terms. You're meant to be my special people. You're meant to be my holy ones. And the enemies of God are not powerless before God's people when God is not with his people. If God's hand was for his people, giving them things, fighting for them, then at the rebellion of his people, the breaking of that obedient dependence on him, his hand was lifted from them. God had made it clear to his people that he's not messing about. His law is about having hearts that are pure before him, no blemish, no spot of sin on us that compromises our own purity in his presence. The holiness of God is dangerous. And if his people are to draw close to him, if his people are to live in his presence, which is what he wants, because he loves us, then God's people need to reflect his holiness too. And at the very least, we need to be able to stand it. That was what the law was about. This is what the temple sacrifice system was about, that there would be a way to stand holy with God, to be purified so that we can bask in his burning light, not compromised by our impurities and risk being burned up by that same light ourselves. This is what Jesus' work was all about. The law and the sacrifices, they were all signposts, pointers to Jesus' life of holiness, of purity, that were eventually given to us as a freely given gift. As Jesus transferred his holiness and righteousness unto us by dying and rising from the dead in our place, ascending to intercede for us at the right hand of God our Father, Jesus' huge work has earned for us what no sacrifice or legal obedience ever could. Such purity, such holiness, and earned at such a cost to our loving God and given so freely to us if we'll just accept it and turn from the sin in our lives so that we can be fully cleansed by him and reunited to him. There can be no half-hearted acceptance when Achan broke the covenant relationship with God, God lifted his hand of blessing, of provision and protection for his people. All or nothing, guys. And when we turn to Jesus, when we ask him to make us his and invite his presence into our lives, as we do pretty regularly here on a Sunday morning, we can only expect him to come to transform us and bless us and fill us if we are wholeheartedly given to him. If instead of coming to God completely, we have one hand holding onto something behind our backs, then we're in no position to receive the full embrace that he wants to offer us. We must, we must let go of anything that challenges God's rule in our life. Anything that might want to sneak into our newly created life as a Christian, but that has no place there. Our repentance, our turning to him must be full or it is no turning at all. If it sounds like I'm being quite strict and down the line with you this morning, it's because it's serious. But don't let me misrepresent God. He is merciful, so merciful. And he desperately wants us to know who he is, to know his love for us, each of us, 
personally as precious sons and daughters. This is the parent who really, really wants the child to put down that weapon that it doesn't understand and to run back into his loving and protecting arms. So even whilst we toy with our own destruction, he did kneel down to us and outstretch his arms to invite us back in. But for our own sake and for those around us, he tells us sternly that his way, his pure way, his loving way is the only way. And we need to drop anything that goes against that. So the Lord is stern with Joshua. Stand up, Joshua. If you're interested, he says kum, which is the same as talitha kum when Jesus tells the little girl to get up. I thought that was dead interesting. He's, get up, Joshua, sort this out. There is sin that needs to be dealt with. And you'll not be able to stand before your enemies until you sort this out. We've said throughout our study of Joshua that our battle today as his church is not the same as the one that ancient Israel was tasked with. And I, for one, am profoundly grateful that our work as church is not to fight bloody battles, but that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our fight is not against men with swords, thankfully, but against the spiritual forces of evil that influence this world. The greed, the envy, the deceit, the lust, the twisted priorities of this world that allow people to be treated like objects, the suffering of so many, the addictions that trap the helpless. These things are not just man-made, but I believe they are the products of evil spiritual influences on humanity. And it's against these that our battle lines are drawn. The sword that we wield, as Ephesians 6 goes on to say in verse 17, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Our weapon is God himself, his presence, and his truth. Practically, I just want to take a moment to give you the biggest lesson I've learned so far in my small experience in spiritual warfare. Worship. I suppose it's like the father who adores his stumbling, mumbling children reaching up for him with innocent delight. Who could resist it? But let me tell you that when we worship God truly, when we give him our whole selves and delight in him, he turns up. His manifest presence increases. He shares himself with us. It's not just warm and fuzzies. So my encouragement for our work of bringing God's kingdom to East Fife in 2018 is to worship God. Our works as a church, like the food bank storehouse, for example, our study of his word, our delight in his wonders when he performs miracles, they come out of our worship of him. I'm convinced of it. The fighting that you and I, friends, are asked to do is to invite God into this world, to be landing pads of his presence, to change our hearts and the hearts of those who see his face shining out of ours. I am sure that God's truth, spoken lovingly, and seeing something about that person, which is the presence of God working through them, has done more to achieve meaningful change in this broken world of ours than any of us could guess at. And have you ever tried to worship him with an unconfessed sin weighing heavy on your heart? 
Have you ever tried to look God in the face when you know you're holding on to something he's forbidden? Let me tell you, it doesn't work. The daddy can see when the toddler is still holding on to that thing that they've been told to put down. The cuddle isn't coming when the child is still in open rebellion or even trying to hide it, rebellion. Joshua needed to purify God's people again so that God's presence could truly and fully be with them and on God's holy terms. Verses 14 to 18 have God guide Joshua on identifying where in Israel the sin that needs to be dealt with is. And Joshua follows that instruction, and sure enough, the sin is revealed. I'll say no more on those verses this morning other than this. If you have some secret sin from the Lord or from his people, it will out. It is far, far better to get right with God, to humble ourselves before him and ask his forgiveness than to try and sit on that secret sin and hope it goes away. Let's rejoin the passage at verse 19 and see the moment of confession. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, you might say Shinar if you're reading in another Bible, it's the same area, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. There's another Hebrew word that we find it difficult to translate here. In verse 19, it's todah, which is translated here as the praise we pop back to that one? Thank you. Uh, give him the praise. It comes from the word yada, which means to throw. And it has the meanings in scripture of to give praise, to give honor, to give glory, or even to confess. And to me, I think that's kind of quite a nice double meaning. If you think about it, it's not one that we have in English. They're both different words, praise God and confess. But I like that the Hebrew word does both. It's like telling the truth to God and giving glory to God are the same thing. And giving glory to God is telling the truth about God. So Joshua tells Achan, confess, give praise to God. And Achan reveals what he's done that so powerfully undermined God's union with his people. That cloak or robe from Shinar, Babylonia, may have been a symbol of the type of kings that Babylon had, or of their priesthood and the worship of their gods, or it could just have been a pretty robe. Whether it was actually a symbol of other gods, or whether it was just a symbol of another culture that was in opposition to God, it was part of the package deal that was to be destroyed as an act of worship to the one, true, only God, Yahweh. And when Achan let greed come before purity of worship, he pushed away the presence of God from himself, and in fact from his whole people, and set a dangerous example. If any of us here this morning need to give a temptation over to the Lord, to ask him to free us from it, or indeed we need to turn back from something that has pulled us away from him and receive his forgiveness, 
then when we offer prayer later on, please do be among those who come forward to be prayed for, for whatever reason. We would love to stand with you and ask God's forgiveness, freedom, and love for you. And the reason we want to do that, the reason we love doing it, is because we know God loves it. His heart is restoration and complete relationship. We won't need to get down on our knees because he's cruel. But when he holds his arms out open, I'd love it if we could step in and have that hug. For God's people, something had to be done about Achan. Having separated him out from the rest of his tribe and only focused on Achan and those under his immediate leadership, Joshua made an example of him. And in verses 24 to 26, the people punish Achan's disobedience by stoning them to death. This is an uncomfortable bit of scripture. We don't like to think of punishment for sin as being as serious as this. And our culture, with our emphasis on individualism, balks at punishment being delivered to a whole family when it's the head of the family who is the leader of the sin. We don't know from this passage whether Achan's family is complicit in the guilt, whether they were indeed as guilty as he was, although it's hard to imagine him being able to dig holes under the family tent to bury stolen goods without them at least noticing. But still, it's uncomfortable. And I want to let you know that I'm uncomfortable with it too. It seems to be at odds with the love that God has for his people, to see him wishing such a severe punishment as death. How do we reconcile this severe punishment with a God who has revealed himself to be so loving and for that matter, actually, what is God doing asking his people to invade and wipe out the culture of the Canaanites in the first place? We're going there. The answer from Scripture is in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. In fact, not just this verse in Deuteronomy, but there are a string of commands to God's people throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy that warn of allowing the worship of other gods to creep into Israel's right relationship with Yahweh. And not just because Yahweh was warning them off empty idols, not just because he likes it when people are looking in the right direction, but because there are real spiritual powers behind those other gods. And they are on the side of God's enemy, the devil. God wanted those powers and the people who were given over to operating on their behalf out of the place that he was making for his presence to be found on earth. If we don't think that the spiritual threat was real, this looks like genocide and it looks like a terrible, terrible, cruel God. But if the threat was real, if the spiritual forces really are out to make a mess of humanity, and God is establishing a place of his peace and his presence, well then, that changes the perspective. God's command to devote to destruction the cultures that inhabit the land he gave to his people was to protect them and to protect the world from the demonic worship of false gods with their horrendous practices, including child sacrifice. Leviticus 20, if you want a reference for that. I still don't think God would command it lightly, though. 
And it seems to me that God would only demand a culture be removed if that culture was bad for us, for his children, for creation. And it should be noted as well that God wasn't merciless even then. There were chances for people in those cultures to turn to God. When Rahab turned to Yahweh, saw that Israel's God was the true God, turned her back on the gods that the people of Jericho worshipped, she was welcomed in. And though I find it uncomfortable to see God commanding Joshua to remove these anti-God cultures from the land that he wanted his people to live in, the result of those cultures not being fully removed, and spoiler alert, they failed, was that a true relationship with the real God of creation was tainted, was mixed with the worship of other spiritual powers. God's people were led astray and began to indulge thoroughly dodgy practices in their worship and their lives. I maintain that God only commands this for good. It is consistent with his love for his creation. No matter how uncomfortable I am, and we might be, with the idea of the violence in these stories, his intent was to protect and bless his children and his creation. For the extra keen readers, I recommend C.S. Lewis's Perilandra that makes an interesting study of that exact point. For us, and again, praise God, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The violence that my own sins and our own sins deserve has been transferred to Jesus on the cross. The violence that the world deserves has been transferred to Jesus, if only they will accept the deal that God offers them of a new start. And instead of violence towards any other person, we are to be uncompromising in our refusal to entertain evil in our own lives. Uncompromising in our resistance to the evils of the world around us and participating in them uncompromising in our adamant prayers that God's kingdom come around us, bringing life to those in captivity, bringing freedom to those who need God's peace and joy and love in their lives. But the only sword we wield is to invite the presence of God into situations around us and to speak his truth into those situations. Joshua 8 verse 1 begins with God reinstating his presence and his provision for his people in an echo of God's first commission to Joshua at the beginning of this book. I'll read it to you. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Joshua and Israel have rooted out and removed the sin from amongst them. And God's presence is restored to them with a repeat of God's encouragement to Joshua from the beginning of his ministry, do not fear, the mission is still on. I'm still with you. Go back to that battle and watch what happens now. God really is faithful and merciful. He gave the nation a second chance and a third and a fourth. Once they'd taken a stand against evil, chosen purity and a pure relationship with God. And friends, as we embark on our own journey of bringing God's kingdom to East Fife, can I encourage, can I implore you that we have no corner of our own souls that is not given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. No undeclared sins left buried under our tents that could undermine our precious relationships with him. And let our desire 
to see God's love blessing our neighbors be unflinching as we worship him fully and invite him into every situation that we can. Why don't you stand and I'll pray for you. Father, would you open our eyes to the reality of the battle, to the threat that lurks behind the evil in the world? Would you open our eyes to how serious it is to walk away from you? And would you open our eyes to how much you love us and how much you desire to hold each of us? I praise you, Lord, for the love you have for each of us in this room. And we invite you again, come Holy Spirit, would you meet and bless each of us.